leaders the tension the car park bottom feeders in Milton Keynes they planned until they burst in Coventry the Germans got there first Reading, Swindon, Temple Meads the lungs are knackered but the teeth are clean
again, uh, my name's Jason Barnard, and welcome to the uh, Strange Brew podcast. This is another fantastic, fantastic show. Such a pleasure to have one of uh, the bandmates from one of my favourite groups of all time, XTC. We have Colin Moulding here, and he's reunited with former uh, XTC drummer Terry Chambers, who you may recall in the sort of early to mid period of XTC and his, his fantastic drumming. So Colin and Terry have reunited for a new EP under the TC and I banner, the Great Aspirations EP, and you heard, just heard the first track from that EP, Kenny. Welcome, Colin. Hello, Jason. Yeah, hello. <laughs> Good evening, or whenever this is going out. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast, it, can, uh, it will be played at all, all times. Well, I'll say good day then. <laughs> well, that's quite appropriate, uh, in a way, in terms of g- good day, uh, especially if we kind of have a slightly Aussie connection. W- w- was the, the spark of um, Terry joining yourselves under the TCNI banner, him coming back over from Australia? Uh, yes, uh, he'd, um, he'd been having some personal problems over there and decided to come back to England after 34 years. So quite a shock, really. So when he came over, we um, we went out for a drink in good old Aussie fashion, you know. Went out to the pub and um, got stony drunk. <laughs> and uh, a few days later, I asked him whether he wanted to play on some songs of mine, you know, uh, which I'd been squirreling away uh, for a while and with no purpose to record them. But when it sort of, ignited the flame really when he came over and we i asked him did he fancy playing on some of them and uh he said yeah give it a go you know so the thing started from there really could you tell us about the genesis of uh kenny which was uh, the first track that we played uh yeah um kenny was um started from a guitar riff really which i thought reminded me very much of uh of a train you know it's a uh, riff that uh, is reminiscent of the noise of a train I thought, or the motion of a train I immediately thought of Philip Larkin's The Wits and Weddings I don't know why because that's an observation from a train where somebody comes up to bowl I think he said and somebody comes in for the tackle you, you see these things from the train playing fields and so forth and then I got to thinking about well they're, they're disappearing because we're building on them I think Kenny is the central figure in the landscape here, but I think primarily the song is really about uh, the building on the playing fields and places where kids' imaginations are developed, the waste grounds and all the rest of it, People where people kick a football around, you know? Maybe that's got something to do with uh, the national side being in tatters. <laughs> I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, so I got, lyrically, one thing followed another, you know. And um, the second track is a, 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 another song off, off the EP, uh, the TCNI uh, Great Aspirations EP, and that's Comrades in Pop. I understand that started as a poem? Yeah, it was a poem about the industry, you know, that I thought um, might raise a few eyebrows. <laughs> but, of course, a lot of people thought that I was talking about the RXTC situation in respect of maybe some disagreement I'd had with Andy or something. I mean, we had disagreements over the last few years, but it was mainly about me wanting to pass the baton 
onto you know the pot baton onto the young people coming into the industry and and just giving them some salutary advice about um you know what generally happens in bands and whatever you do you mustn't get involved with the money man because they're going to make mincemeat out of you you know yeah so we did it to a kind of a march which i thought was appropriate we'd have the guitar across our shoulder or something like a gun you know <laughs> an unusual ditty and and kind of very different in respect of just talking along to music in allotted places on the track i thought it was an interesting thing to do and i don't think not many people have done it i think john betjeman set his poems to music in the 70s but i can't remember too many incidences of, of people wanting to do that sort of stuff you know i just thought it was a quite a good outing to do you know and singing in in an appropriate place we we thought was natural to come in the old rules don't apply you know you've just got to think up some new ones was it just uh, yourself and Terry on those recordings, or did you have any other uh, musicians on them? Uh, they're mostly samples, I think, on that particular one. Uh, on Kenny, there's definitely... Uh, um, we got um, a, a local chap to play trumpet, but um, on Comrades, I think we used samples. We were doing the record on a budget, you see, so we couldn't couldn't really afford to, uh, to pay ensembles of people, you know. <laughs> So um, I didn't have the XTC budgets, you know, that we used to have, the many thousands. But uh, so we had to we had to rein it in a bit. More of a Duke's budget. <laughs> Very much a Duke's budget, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Was it a quick process like the Duke's? Well, we didn't know too much about. I mean, we recorded it ourselves, so we didn't. I mean, we're not trained engineers. We. We've obviously picked up some stuff along the way about how to record and stuff. And I'd done some recording uh, of my voice for other people and sent it down the line. Uh, so we, we we knew a little, but we made mistakes, obviously, and we had to redo things and stuff, you know. And the, the process obviously took longer than, than the process would with a, a fully trained engineer, you know. But we we just tried everything we could and... We had a bit of a guardian angel in um, the guy who mixed the record, a guy called local guy called Stuart Rowe. If we, we we went wrong in a few places. He said, "Well, this is a bit wayward, fellas. You'll have to rein it in here or re-record it or something." And um, that was good because we had another eye on the ball, you know. But you know, we just tried everything we could, and and um, it worked out. It's been really well received by the fans, and obviously the the XDC. Uh, fans are just as passionate as ever. They seem to be, yes. They seem to to have warmed to it. I mean, the, the reaction to it has been sort of overwhelming, really, on mm. it being so well received. Big surprise. Everyone can uh, still get a copy of the EP on. Um, I th- think that you've got a pledge music site and also on Burning Shed. Yes, we have two two sites that that can retail the uh, the record. Uh, one is Pledge Music and the other is Burning Shed. That's the way people operate these days, you know. The old rules don't apply anymore, you know. Just fortunate to remember the old rules, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a different ball game this uh, today with selling music over the web. Yeah. But there you have it. There you have it. And um, 
uh, for those that keep listening, we'll be finishing the the, the show with uh, two more tracks from the uh, TC and I EP. So uh, anyway, um, I'll I'll play Comrades in Pop now. writes the hits that gets the money in this funny old world of pop the bassist and the drummer might be lucky but never seem to get a lot you start out high school buddies and swear allegiance for all time but when the checks come rolling in it's cash or I resign But the duffest tune a band can play And even the nightingale's despair Is the sound of a lawyer's doorbell That rings in Barclay Square Ring out for all time Comrades of pop turn away In love and war all is fair A far worse fate awaits you On carpets made from human hair Let's go relatively early into the sort of XTC uh, singles back to 1979. And um, I think your first A-side for the group Life Begins at the Hop. That's a song that remembers just the formative teen years and, and all the sort of dances and discos that were going on. Yes, it's it's kind of youth club stuff, really. Uh, we used to go to the church hall for a little hop that would play records on a Friday night, you know, that kind of thing. And you'd get Coke and lemonade and crisps and, you know, these kind of confections at um, at the place. And I think I must have been about 14. But it was my f- first kind of crack at having a hit single, you know. we It's great, the top 40. And uh, for somebody who wasn't really the writer of the band, it was... Um, quite a departure really till that point i mean andy was pretty much the writer i wrote but i think i wrote to fit him with what he was doing and i don't think anybody really took my writing that seriously you know so it was all a bit of a shock when the record company say no we like this one colin and you wrote that one didn't you and uh we're going to put that one out because in those days the record company they chose the singles so you you'd never really had much of a say about what you wanted to put out if they if they thought there was commercial potential in the record. But, uh, it was recorded at the townhouse 
the new Virgin Studios in Gold Hawk Road, where I think was the, was the old home of the old Gold Hawk Film Studios, where I think Hitchcock had worked in the twenties. You know, yeah, it was quite a thrill. I think when me and Andy went to see the see the studio, it was just a mass of wires, and we were one of the first bands to use it. So it was all pretty exciting stuff. They had accommodations so we could stay up in London. And, uh, yeah, quite a big thrill, really, to work with people like Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padgham, who went on to big things, you know. So, yeah, it was exciting times. Little old me had a, wrote the XTC single, so it was, yeah, quite a revelation. And Top of the Pops. And Top of the Pops, yes. <laughs> I think it was the only time that we'd appeared on Top of the Pops where the single actually went down. <laughs> so um, what happened there, I don't know. Not to worry, there were bigger things in the pipeline. We were all very enamoured with um, Steve's, Steve Lillywhite's uh, production credits. He'd uh, just done the Ultravox's first album, and we all liked the sound on that, and uh, that was why he was brought in to, uh, to have a go with us. You know, we, we kind of liked his sound. So, yeah, it was, everything was happening. It was a big thrill. Fantastic. Well, let's play it. XTC in life begins at the hop all the way back from 1979. <laughs> <laughs>
Now we're moving on to uh, making plans for Nigel. The interesting for me about this song, other than that it's a landmark track, is um, how it evolved. I understand that in terms of your sort of demo or initial sort of vision for this, it was kind of a bit much more acoustic, whereas the release track really feels like the whole band gave their all and, and it really lifted it to that sort of single level. Well, in those days, I used to play a beaten-up old Echo acoustic guitar, and um, I used to play all downstrokes. I never got into the strumming thing. I used to play it like it was an electric, like I was playing the bottom three strings of an electric guitar, you know, just all downstrokes. Uh, but the thing with playing all downstrokes is that you can you can put in the accents of the drums, you know, all this kind of business. So when Nigel came up, uh, we took our watchword from from that, really. Terry kicked it around a bit, and uh, Andy was very enamored with um, Devo and their version of the Rolling Stones track, Satisfaction. It kind of uses unusual drums to play not what you'd think, if you know what I mean. So that basically what you play on the hi-hat, you play it on a tom-tom or something. So, yeah. It's an unusual beat, and I. And that was the thing about our rehearsals then, is that if somebody came up with a little bit of an idea, then the baton would be passed on to somebody else, or somebody would interject and say, yeah, that's good, but what about this, you know? And this beat came about, uh, this kind of throbbing beat. And that's how the, the drum part uh, manifested itself, you know? And then um, we have Dave playing the chords and Andy doing the icing on the top, really. That was the thing. Getting Andy to play the chords was uh, like getting him to take castor oil off a spoon. He didn't much like like doing it. Yeah, the whole thing came together and everybody played their part. That success lifted XCC to another level. Did, did that create sort of more pressures or were you just kind of getting in the swing of recording, touring, etc.? Uh, well, suddenly the, the gigs kind of shot up in number. We'd done a short English tour before we recorded the record. But we quickly, when Nigel became a hit, we quickly had to do another one because it was quite became quite evident that um, we could fill places that we could only dream about uh, a few months before. You know, the single sort of propelled us into another dimension. Really, it was all very overwhelming. Really, it was when you inadvertently inadvertently write a hit, it's letting like a genie out of a bottle. You've got no control over it. You know. It rises around you, and you have to be careful it doesn't engulf you, you know. Especially coming from little old me, who wasn't deemed as being the writer in in XTC. I was the upstart, I think. Be happy 
He must be happy. He must be happy in his world. singles from yourself did keep coming and and deservedly so next track is generals and majors from black sea 1980 and the theme of the song just seemed to be sort of a something that you come back to which is about that sort of militaristic march to war and the the way that the the song sounds has got that sort of perversely positive beat to it if that makes sense yeah i think the guitar riff almost becomes like a a uh, like a, a fanfare into battle or something well, it was kind of wanting to send up generals like Haig from the First World War and Kitchener and that, oh, what a lovely war kind of thing. And what springs to mind is that sketch by 
Peter Cook and Dudley Moore about making a futile gesture by going over the top. So I thought, well, this is something that we could have fun with. But I never dreamed that uh, Virgin would choose it as the next single. In fact, I think it was going to be Towers of London was going to be the first single off the record. But uh, Virgin changed their mind. When the single came out, we were (laughs) due to go to Australia to start a tour. Flipping typical. (laughs) So um, we didn't have a video. And it just so happens that uh, the BBC were at the manor which was uh, Richard Branson or Virgin's uh, studios in Oxfordshire. They were making a documentary about the manor and about Richard and stuff. We went pining to Richard Branson to tell him our dilemma that we were leaving the country tomorrow. And we didn't have a have a video for the, for the new single Generals and Majors, you know. And he said, well, hang on a minute, chaps, I might be able to help you there. So uh, the film crew who were there kind of made the video really that's what all that bouncy castle stuff is in the video it's just what was set up for the documentary you know so you hired some uh some costumes and uh, uh richard played along yes i suppose he thought well this is my chance to get in on the act so we so uh, i think the simon draper who was head of a and r he i think he's in a some sort of general's garb. We just had to have something to to give to MTV, you know. So, yeah, I think it made top 30 or thereabouts. So, not bad for being out of the country, you know. Well, let's play it. I don't expect you to whistle now, Colin. (laughs) No, all right.
Before we uh, move on to our next track, I just wanted to touch on English settlement. As you were reflecting uh, previously, your confidence in songwriting seemed to be there in this period and over the next few albums, you did make quite significant contributions to the records. I think you had sort of four tracks off English Settlement. Was, it, was that just because just you were more prolific in this period? I don't know. I, I think after Barry left, after the second album, it seemed to set something off in me. I don't know. The way bands are and the and the dynamic around individuals within the band is is a funny old thing, you know. Around that time, I began to write more melodic, and I just suppose I hit a golden pack. I felt I could be more myself. But that didn't last, folks, you know. <laughs> so um, you go through golden periods, I think, and then you, you kind of slump, only to rise up again the other side, you know. You have, you know, that's the way it is. You know, you can't be fantastic all the time. You know, <laughs> Sometimes you, a lot of people think, well, you must have some control over it. I don't think you have, you know. You have to take what your imagination gives you, you know, and do the best you can with it. So um, I didn't have too many singles from there on in, but uh, that's the way it is. There's Ball and Chain, I think, wasn't there? Ball and Chain was a single. Um, or I should say I didn't have too many hits, but yeah, there were, there were singles. Yeah, Ball and Chain was a single. That was the follow-up to Senses. The next track uh, is uh, is from the Big Express and, and what you've called the Wilderness Years, which is kind of linking into what you were saying previously, which is kind of like um, the, the songs were kind of, uh, and albums were charting in the sort of lower reaches of, of the charts. So that the, um, And we're talking about, I remember the son from the Big Express. Um, what, what's your recollection about the sort of writing of this song? Well, yes, I think you could safely say that this was our wilderness years. We'd made Mummer, and that didn't wasn't particularly well received. I just think Virgin wanted a, a single, and I think we went off the boil. I think one of the bright lights in the, in the gloomy period was the fact we worked with Pete Phipps from the Glitter Band. A lot of people remember the Glitter Band with that kind of heavy drum, heavy tom tom drums. Really good drumming. Yeah. And Pete was one of the drummers in the band, and uh, we got him involved um, to session on the on the two albums that we made around this time. Terry left for Australia, early mummer period. Yeah, because it coincided with the fact that we'd finished touring, and Andy had developed sort of neurosis with stage fright and whatnot, so we weren't able to tour. And I think that was a big part of it for Terry. You know, uh, coincided with getting married and having a child and stuff and happened to be the worst rainiest winter ever so his his wife was not happy and so there was pressure on him from both sides so i think he said well i'm i'm off then you know with the symbols still swinging like you know. <laughs> and um so we had to use a succession of session drummers from here on in and uh as i say uh pete phipps uh stepped into the saddle and uh, a lot of people don't realize how versatile he was you know and we did um, one or two quite jazzy kind of tracks uh, around this time and one of them was I Remember the Sun you know uh, my demo of the, of the record was was very rocky it wasn't jazzy at all but um, 
became quite apparent that it sounded quite ordinary when it was done in a very rocky fashion. So we were searching for a, a way of doing this song, you know. And then we began to kick it around in a kind of a jazz fashion. There was me and Pete going through our jazz paces, you know, and it really, really worked out rather well. But uh, Pete was still gigging with the with the um, glitter band at the time, so you'd have so you'd have all the guys turning up at Crescent Studios in Bath, and the rest of the glitter band saying, uh, "Is Pete finished yet? We'd like him for the gig, you know." So they'd go off and play a gig, and then Pete would be back with us the next morning, you know. So quite bizarre really this was a track that turned out really quite well a bright light in what was a relatively gloomy period for us really drumming really shows you know from from the sort of more jazzier 
side, if I remember the sun, to a real powerhouse of, of Wake Up, which lifts that track. So uh, it is quite apparent. Yeah, they're both kind of dreamlike tracks, really. I mean, the general Wake Up's more in line with how the al- the album is, that kind of heavy guitar, really. Those guitars, how it starts the album is those guitars in, in a left and right speaker, more or less arguing with each other like two Jack Russells, you know. <laughs> and uh, with I Remember the Sun, it was a kind of a slight departure from how the album was. Yeah, it's strange that um, from from the wilderness years, that the thing that rejuvenated the band was, um, you know, a spur-of-the-moment idea of, of, of recreating the sound of the 60s with the Dukes of Stratosphere. And um, we're, we're playing a, a song from Sonic Sunspot, was, which was a few years later, albeit the first genesis of that was in the 25 O'Clock album. But, I mean, Vanishing Girl, which is uh, one of your tracks, is uh, feels sort of very Holly-esque. Well, that was the thing. We'd done the first project, in uh ooh, late 85 i think or was it 84 late 84 i think in a studio in wales mall from the ministry uh your gold dress and all these kind of tracks and uh, it was quite well received and um and sold quite well so virgin in 87 we we came out of retirement the dukes and thought we'd expand the remit you know and he did a kind of a send-up of the Beach Boys. And then I did Vanishing Girl, which was a send-up of the Hollies, you know. We just expanded the, the format a bit. It was recorded down at uh, Sawmill Studio in Cornwall, where they had a lovely old Neve desk. And we got back working with John Leckie again. It was the strangest place because we had to get the gear in by by boat. It was uh, The studio was right by this little creek, which when the tide came in, filled up with water, but when it went out, it was just a, a morass of mud. The owners of the studio, their children, was, were living this real swallows and Amazons existence, uh, just messing about in boats all day, you know. I think they were taught at home. But yeah, it was quite a bizarre place. But I think John Leckie knew that they, have a, they had a great old Neve desk down there and we were able to use it and lots of things that we could use lots of 60s old gear you know and i think that was the attraction of going there yeah so we were down there for about three weeks sort of sleeping out in these cabins up in the hills
Inside. As I opened it, out burst a fountain of many coloured butterflies, rainbow game counters, chess pieces, laughing cutlery, tiny chairs and tables, and flying plates covered with exotic fruit. I know that the, the songs that you contributed to that project were, were often songs that you, you had lying around that could have been XTC songs. Was this one of the those songs that could have been on an XTC album that you, duke, you recreated for the Dukes in terms of the sound, or was this something that you did bespoke? No, this was specially written, Vanishing Girl was right. specially written for, for the Dukes project. Whereas I think um, the other two probably I had hanging around and could have been crowbarred into the into fitting, you know. And one of the prod, one of the uh, songs that we thought we would do actually um, we ended up keeping for um, for Skylarking which was a big day we were going to we were going to yes we were going to use big day on the uh, on the Jukes thing but um, everybody thought no it was too too good a song to actually let go so we we were holding it back for um, for when we did um, the next XTC record which was uh, Skylarking you could tell that it would work well in the, in, in the Dukes, the, the sound of that, that song. Yeah. It's got a slightly eastern. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. It has, it has a kind of a drone going through it. Yeah, it could have worked, but I'm glad we, you know, I, I think it was too good to kind of let go, really. So we uh, we thought, no, we'll do it on the next XTC record, which happened to be uh, Skylarking. It's your beat your big Big 
So you, you mentioned uh, skylarking, Colin, and um, as I was mentioning previously, in this period you were, were pretty prolific and were, were almost, um, in terms of the number of songs you were contributing, or certainly ending up on the albums, you, you were almost matching Andy. Yes. Well, perhaps I should fill you in on a little bit of background stuff. Well, as most people know, we recorded, recorded the album in, in America with Todd Rundgren. It was deemed that we want that we would try someone different, and perhaps we needed an American producer to bring back the magic that we'd had a few years before with hit singles. And a few names were bandied about, and Todd's name came up, and Dave was quite enthusiastic to use him because he'd had some of his material as well. But the unusual thing is that when we sent the de- when Andy and I sent the demos over to Todd, he'd uh, within a week he'd cut cut all the demos together in a running order and said there's your album when we went over to his studio in Woodstock upstate New York we we essentially 
started track one, side one. And that was the way it worked. He, he had this concept whereby we'd go from the passing of a day, the morning, the brightness of the morning into the gloom of the night. And the album would represent the passing of a day. That the sunnier end was this track grass, you know. The sunnier end is at the beginning and the gloomier end is at the end, you know. As we recorded more and more songs, it became quite evident that Andy didn't really get along with Todd and uh, that there was a bit of a rub there, you know. And one of the things about it was that the fact that there was two philosophies of recording that were going, were clashing. Uh, Todd was all for just doing a couple of takes, and if it didn't work, well, we'll come back to it or ditch it or something and do something else. Whereas Andy usually likes his pound of flesh when he's recording, and, you know, we'll do 10 or 12 takes until we get it right. Todd would start a keyboard part and... And he said, yes, we've got the part now, Todd, let's do it for real. And you say, well, what do you mean do it for real? I've done it. It was already done, you know, as far as he was concerned. So there was a rub there we had to get by with. What do you do when um, two personalities clash in that way? You know, you just uh, <laughs> let them get on with it, really. So, yeah, Grass is one of the sunnier tracks uh, towards the beginning of the, of the record. And, uh, and here it is, folks.
That was uh, released as a single. Dear God was on the B-side originally. It was. I don't know why it was chosen as a single. Somebody must have thought it had potential. So they put it out in America, and it got circulated to a lot of college stations, and they began playing the B-side, which was, dear God, how dear God ended up on the B-side, I'll never know. But then there's a story to tell about that. But it was Andy that didn't want it on the record. Oh, was it? Yeah, he didn't want it on the record. It was in Todd's running order. Andy went to the record company and said he had another song called Another Satellite and wanted it on the record and got Virgin behind him to put it on the record, which upset Todd. He, he thought it ruined his concept. And so he said, well, all right, if you want this on, then what are you going to take off? So Andy said, dear God. So it was his decision to take it off. Of course, when it received the reaction that it did around college radio stations in America, it was quickly put on a repressing and got reinstated on the record. And one or two others had to come off instead. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a messy process, but uh, I don't think anyone was really enamored with the process and uh, it upset a few people. But uh, that's uh, that's rock music, folks. But after Grass on um, on, on Skylarking, we saw the, the meeting place, which was kind of on, on the sort of sunnier side of the album. And was that, again, recalling... Uh, teenage years in in Swindon. Yes, I think uh, if well, if Grass was the teenage your years, then Meeting Place was probably later. Probably, you know, you've just hitched up with a girl and you're you're her fiance or something. It's about meeting your girlfriend at the factory gates, if you like. A little, little bit of the Rolling Stones factory girl in it, I think. Uh, my wife used to work in a printer's. And uh, I used to meet her for lunchtime, uh, and we'd go off to the pub and have a drink and a, and a sausage sandwich, as they said. At that particular time, it's uh, we had the Swindon Railway Works, you see, uh, which is sadly closed now. And um, you had this hooter. It was a hooter that went off when the workers had to be in work. Stems from, oh, Victorian times, I think. And um, the hooter is quite still quite famous and remembered in Swindon even now, you know. So we thought we'd put the Hooter on the record to get that kind of Lowry vibe, belching chimneys, foggy factory vibe. Oh, 
you closed the album with two tracks as well on uh, Dying and um, Sacrificial Bonfire. Yeah, uh, well, Sacrificial Bonfire was the reprieve at the end. Uh, things were getting pretty dark with Dear God and, and Dying, you know, and it was felt that some sort of lift just needed to be had at the end as as a new dawn, you know. Uh, this kind of primitive thing played on a nylon string guitar, Sacrificial Bonfire, and I it had that kind of uh, pagan kind of thing about it. So we got the nylon string guitar out and played the riff on that. And then Todd said, well, it's okay, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And I said, well, all right, what, what, what you got in mind? And uh, so he did this string arrangement for the latter part of the song, which really kind of took it to the Albert Horn back. Uh, so the album finishes on a high. So that concludes Skylarking, Colin, and we've covered so much ground. We actually have space to do a second part and and really give us a chance to stretch out and uh, take us all the way from Oranges and Lemons and through the XTC years and bring us really up to date again, finishing with TC&I. So everybody, listen out soon and join us in the next couple of weeks for part two of the podcast with Colin Moulding. Yes, indeed. Listen on. Don't go away.